0: this series, we've looked at the core building blocks of business and industries, from financial services through to travel and hospitality, new media ventures to pharmaceuticals. But in this week's episode of The Chiefs, we're getting a little more literal about the state of play. Sitting comfortably among the most notable toy makers in the world are the products of the Danish superbrand Lego. Named according to the Danish words to play well, the sturdy shapes and bright hues have always had a greater purpose than to sit in a heap on a nursery floor. Once misunderstood in schools of thought on childhood development was the importance of play. But the LEGO Group was always convinced of its vital role, so in 1986 they founded the affiliate organization the LEGO Foundation, tasked with encouraging learning and problem-solving through play from Colombia to Myanmar, Tanzania and beyond. Speaking to us today from Lego's home city of Billund, and at the helm of the foundation since 2017 is CEO John Goodwin. With schools shuttered and students and their parents forced to take matters into their own hands, it has been a testing time for learning across the world. But amongst the chaos, is there an opportunity to redefine our narrow definitions of learning and rediscover the importance of play? I'm Tyler Brulé and this is The Chiefs on Monocle 24. John, thanks very much for joining us. I guess we should probably kick off by maybe establishing a bit of a framework for this. For people who, of course, have tuned in and are expecting uh, to get a Lego preview of what is going to be under Christmas trees and on store shelves this year, you're probably going to disappoint people a little bit because you need to set the stage for us as to really, what does the Lego Foundation do? Of course, everyone knows the brand very well, but of course, there is a much broader side in terms of outreach, commitment to community, which you helm, but maybe uh, for our listeners, define what the Lego Foundation is all about.
1: So the Lego Foundation owns 25% of the Lego group. So 25% of the profits effectively of the commercial products flow up into the foundation, And that then funds the activities that we conduct. And the foundation's focus is on redefining play and reimagining learning. So let me just say a couple of things about that. Redefining play in the minds of society, because in many instances around the world, people view play as that thing that gets done and conducted by children when all the important stuff is finished. And we believe that that is a very poor way of thinking about play and the importance of play in children's lives because it is an essential component to help them fully develop. And then to reimagine learning as well in the context of really rethinking how it is that children learn and develop, and then what are the different roles of things like education systems and early childhood centers within that construct so that's really what we focus on and we do that on a global basis when we define play it's not exclusively in the context of lego products we define play in the widest context as a methodology by which children can develop
0: It's interesting when you talk about play on one side, but then, of course, obviously, the work that you're doing in an educational space, and and of course, we're going to spend a little bit of time on that over the next 25 minutes or so, but tell us about the evolution of this. Of course, yes, we can think in maybe cynical terms that, yes, Lego, of course, as a broader brand, would have a vested interest in play, but as you said, of course, it goes beyond, obviously, the core aspects of what you're bringing to market. And you are a foundation, of course, operating independently from the rest of 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 the group. But what was the starting point for this? Was there a moment when one of the family members or or someone within the group said, listen, there is something fundamental happening here which needs to be addressed? Was it born out of a problem or a specific need?
1: Well, actually, it's amazing the insight that the founding family of the Lego group had with regards to the importance of Play. So the, the, the word lego is derived from Danish words of playing well. There's been a fundamental belief in the owner family that play is such an important aspect of children's lives that they need to be given the means by which they can achieve that. And interestingly, the, the foundation was formed back in the late 80s with this mission of redefining play and reimagining learning, and what's happened during the period of its existence is actually the neurological science is very much caught up with that belief. So the research has indicated that play is such a fundamental way in which children are able to make the neurological connections that then manifest themselves at later dates in skills such as creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, problem solving. So the, the science to a certain degree is caught up with the belief. So now we're able to marry very robust research alongside our programmatic implementations in order to affect the societal change that we're looking to achieve.
0: If we go back to the eighties and of course the development of the foundation, I'm curious about, again, the kicking off points, the starting points for all of this? Was there a body of research done potentially to say, who was playing well? And I guess that's probably one thing a lot of um, listeners are thinking about. When people get out and travel around the world, it's interesting to see what a Japanese kindergarten looks like, for example. There are a lot of buckets, there's a lot of mud, there's a lot of water everywhere, kids are kitted out. you know, To really explore and get dirty. And of course, you see other corners of the world where a lot of kids are just tethered to screens right now. But what was the starting point and I guess the ambition to to figure out a framework for the foundation?
1: For many years, actually, the foundation existed in the traditional form of what comes to people's minds when they hear the word foundations. And it was a grant giving institution that would award funding to a number of organizations around the world that were doing good works in the area of children's development. And it really wasn't until around 2010, where the resources of the foundation had really grown dramatically on the back of the success of the core brand, that the family really made an intervention and said, we have to be much more structured and deliberate about how we utilize the funds at the foundation's disposal. And that's where they undertook a reinvention where they have invested considerably in research in order to substantiate a lot of the, uh, the beliefs that I was referring to earlier and really ramped up the size of the disbursements that are taking place from the foundation. So really it's been over the course of the last 10 years, that the foundation has really lifted off in terms of the, I think for want of a better word, professionalization of how it was approaching things. And then more recently, we've been very focused in driving systemic change. where are looking at the structures that surround the child and how it is that we can positively impact those in various environments around the world to enable children, the environments to thrive.
0: I guess it demands the question, does play have a problem right now? You talk about systemic change, because of course, Mm. I imagine that you can put a child on a stretch of grass or on a stretch of of wood floor, and you can offer them books and blocks and backlit screens and all kinds of things today, and maybe they will interact in the same way, or is that not the case? I'm wondering, and it's a very big question, but literally what is the state of play today? In some instances,
1: it definitely is at a key juncture. As you say, there are a wide range of perceptions and implementations of play around the world. The great thing is that from what we've found, is from a child's perspective, it's very consistent. You know children love to engage in things that are meaningful, that are socially interactive, where they're actively engaged, where they have a chance to iterate that really embodies that joyful feeling that you have when you're undertaking something that's challenging and you're figuring it out. And those characteristics are consistently present when we see what we define as learning through play in different environments. Now, how the culture typically experiences that that varies. So we've seen that with some of our implementation partners where the partner will be doing an implementation, say in the uh, Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh. And there the local culture is very much one of dance and very active play. Quite what, what in some cultures would be see quite rough and tumble type of acrobatic type of stuff, but that's the local culture and that's how children love to play. And then you transpose the same type of learning activity across into, say, Tanzania or Uganda. And there there's a lot more song and acting out through singing. There's cultural adaptations, but the core characteristics are very consistent.
0: You, of course, just cited some places in, in the developing world. But I'm wondering when you of course, spin the globe. Are there places that people can look to? And I guess when we talk about systemic change, are there places uh, that the foundation looks to that said, actually, they have play figured out?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's many great examples around the world, not necessarily at the national level, but there's a lot of implementations at the community level, where the caregivers that are surrounding the, the child really recognised that rather than a child being a vessel that is filled by adults, instead the child is a a wonderful individual within themselves, have all of the inherent capabilities and what that needs is to be nurtured out. And I think that's very much the sort of general mental way in which most Scandinavian countries would view children. That's not to say that all Scandinavian countries are perfect or all families are perfect. But just from a societal point of view, is that that general view that, that children are not, as I say, vessels to be filled. But there's other areas of the world where there's more of that sort of sit quiet in a row and be lectured to type of mentality. And that's really what we're pushing against in order to try and Find ways in which children have the opportunity to have self-agency because all of the research would indicate that that is the methodology of development that really lays the foundations for those critical skills that I was referring to earlier that are in such enormous demand by society today.
0: John, you're speaking to us from Billund, of course, Billund being home base, or at least part of the global home base for the the far-flung Lego world. But the foundation sits there. So if you cast your eyes, if you can, beyond where you're sitting, uh, up and down Denmark or elsewhere in Scandinavia, what are those fundamentals that you see? What happens in a schoolyard in Norway or in a back garden in Denmark that maybe we're not seeing elsewhere in the world. and As you said, you're trying to maybe sort of push against, of course, everyone lined up in a row and listening and nodding. Is there something um, that is potentially unique to uh, the makeup of, of play in the Nordic region?
1: The OECD publishes some interesting data in the context of the PISA results. There's a lot of criticism, but we find them very helpful in terms of the broad steers that they... Indicate and Finland often comes towards the top of the PISA scores, and yet, when you look at the number of hours that Finnish students spend within the classroom, it's towards the lowest end of the population of countries that participate in PISA scores. So, the amount of time that they spend sitting at a desk in a structured curriculum lectured framework is very low they spend a lot of time outside exploring partially facilitated but largely under the rules set by the children themselves in exploration Uh, an interesting aside the temperature has to be below minus 18 degrees centigrade for them not to go outside so it really is seen as a critical part of their day And I just find that that's an interesting data point where that particular schooling system really believes in giving the child the opportunity to have that agency and have less really formal structures towards it. I won't call the countries out, but you can find them on the OECD website. But those that have more hours in the classroom typically fare towards the poorer end of the PISA results. I think it's really interesting. So within that, this whole need to redefine play as not something that is a discretionary luxury that children should have, but more a key designed part of their day to enable them to develop and grow in the way that they're wired to because we are naturally wired to explore and iterate. Even as adults, we find so much more joy in that approach than being told a very prescriptive, this is what you have to do, follow these rules.
0: Now take it out of the classroom or out of the schoolyard for us then. If you bring it to the the apartment, out on the terrace, out in a private garden, a shared garden, how does that manifest itself when you are in a private family social environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, it depends very much on the age of the child. So the first thousand days are really important for a child's development. And within that, the parent-child or caregiver-child relationship is critical in the context of the play relationship. It doesn't mean to say that the adult always has to be attentive, but that interaction between the child and the adult in the play activities Can have a dramatic effect on the child's neurological development. So that's where you'll be playing games with the child, things like peekaboo, role playing, are really researched to show that they have a great impact in the child's development of things like social emotional skills and creativity. As children get older, providing them the opportunity to play in a way that really gives them the chance to explore. I mentioned before this iterative nature to problem solving. Instead of them undertaking tasks where there's a, a single outcome, instead having the opportunity to just test and see what fails and understanding that if something doesn't work, that's not a personal failure, but it's more an opportunity to explore and find out how to succeed. We've published a number of of reports to show that play covers a wide spectrum. You can have free play, and then you can have highly facilitated play. All ranges of the spectrum have a positive impact if conducted successfully.
0: John, tell us about maybe the track change that you've had to do as an organization over the last four or five months. And, And maybe we could sort of park how you work as an organization, as opposed to maybe the programmatic changes that you've been making. Because of course, everyone will know that schools have been shuttered in many corners of the world, and there is so much home learning, and you are at the core of so many of these elements. And and in many ways, yeah, if you think of the elements that of course help facilitate the foundation, there's going to be Lego and lots of other toys, depending on, on the age bracket, sitting in in the corner, either as a distraction or an opportunity but what type of thinking is going on at the foundation now when so many kids around the world are tethered to a screen or not? You know, Many parents uh, having to be fully responsible for schooling
1: these days as well. We decided to make quite a dramatic pivot back in March and to all intents and purposes shut down a large amount of the activities that we were conducting, and redirected our attention to what is needed in this global pandemic crisis to help children continue their development journey. So as part of that, first priority was obviously to take care of our organisation. The second was to then also look at our partners, our extended network that we have been working with on our mission and ensuring that they had the structures that they needed in order to keep operating. Many charitable organisations have found it really difficult to operate, particularly those that have been focusing on children's development. So we have been figuring out what it is that they need in order to sustain and change and pivot their activities. And then we've specifically focused on the emerging needs. So to your point, we've initiated a number of activities around distance learning, how to provide parents with the insights or the tools that they need in order to assist them. And in some environments, providing children with specific tools as well. To give you an example, we're working with one of our partners in Colombia to provide 100,000 kits that are effectively creativity kits that use locally sourced materials that are then distributed throughout Colombia to help children that are in quite impoverished areas continue their learning journey, as an example. Another example is working with Sesame Workshop to come up with some specific content to help children make sense of what's happening around them, to really focus on the social-emotional development of children which is so critical in times of crisis and trauma.
0: Is there a specific house view as well, a top five concepts, ideas that you're prescribing, you know, for someone who is also sitting down the lake in Zurich, who's working for a multinational, or both parents working for a multinational, with three kids at home as well, because... In a way, this has been such an incredible leveler. It doesn't matter where you are in the socioeconomic scale, it doesn't matter where you are geographically in the world. People have been impacted and whole families in a very similar way. Are there sort of mechanics and percentages that you're also working with to help guide from a
1: foundation perspective? We have curated a number of activities and you can find them on the hashtag learning through play at home or on our website to help parents with this homeschooling situation. We've also recently published a report called Children, Technology in Play. You mentioned screen time. It's a question that we often get. We're not proponents of the school of thought that screens are bad. There's many instances where they're highly effective. And the report that I just mentioned indicates that we really see this pandemic, the crisis, is a real opportunity to challenge our thinking around learning. For Studies have been conducted by Brookings Institute that indicate that 80% of children's waking time is spent outside the classroom. And that's outside of the pandemic situation, Is pre-pandemic. So this is an opportunity as a consequence of so many children being at home with their parents, having to source different forms of learning. It's a real opportunity for us to challenge our way of thinking and to broaden our minds with regards to the opportunities. So screen time can be highly creative, can be highly collaborative, social, can develop all of the skills. But it's all a question of ensuring that it's got the right structure. In much the same way as a, a classroom situation has to be appropriately facilitated, it's the same on screen time. So what it is that's on the screen is the critical thing, as opposed to whether it's a screen or whether it's a physical activity.
0: Mental health, and we just touched on it briefly, of course, is, is a huge component of this. Everyone is very much focusing on mental health around the pandemic. But if we come back to screens, there is a school of thought, and I think one that we probably have to believe because it seems to be, led by a number of people in the neurology space. And they say, "To what are the great problems? And this also impacts play as well, is that short-term recall, general knowledge, this is diminishing. And, and people are saying this is, is a health crisis because people no longer know what the capital of South Africa is because they can go and look it up and some would argue, okay, you don't need to know the capital of South Africa. But at the same time, this, this notion that the brain is a garden And if you need to go and find things in the garden, you need to walk through it. And that's, of course, how our brains fire. This is how we go and and recall things. And we have to sort of go and walk those paths in our brains every single day to recall names, to recognize a plant in the forest. Is there work being done around this? Because you hear that this is this next wave, that, that dementia is going to be hitting people earlier, etc. And of course, this in many ways, a lot of this is formed in those first thousand days.
1: A lot of the research that I was referring to earlier really points to how it is that we can put those healthy structures in place through the caregiver and child interactions and the environments that we create for children in order to get that essential neurological development in place. So there is a lot of research, great work being done by many of our partners. Harvard Center for Developing Child is one that I would call out, particularly work around the concept of toxic stress, how that occurs within children, the impact it has on the neurological development, and then the methodologies by which those can be alleviated. You know, it's very, very important work and I think it's key that we utilise that through this pandemic process to ensure that children are understood and that we're giving them the opportunities to work that toxic stress and, and trauma out of their system by putting in place the right structures and environments. Learning through play is a key enabler and it's been shown through the research to be a great way in which children have the opportunity to express themselves which is an important component of their social-emotional development, as well as getting the self-regulation, which is often disturbed when they're put in environments of crises. Toxic
0: stress is an interesting point. Does the Foundation have a view on whether play is becoming too politicized, over-politicized, even overthought? Because... Again, whether you are four or you're 14, you have a variety of different forces coming from you. And then suddenly you also have a lot of barriers erected around it in an increasingly politicized world. And And I'm sure this is something that a lot of parents and a lot of educators must struggle with. And I'm curious in these times where People are so reactive and so fast to condemn. What is the foundation's take on the politicization of play?
1: We very much try to put the child at the center because child choice is a key element for their active engagement. And that's where putting a very rigid prescription around the amount of time that should be spent in one activity relative to another and when that should occur, it's somewhat undermines the objective of truly giving the child the agency to make it meaningful for them at that particular point in time. So that's where our point is that we need to explore the full gamut, as I was mentioning before, with regards to play, understand the roles that it has in a child's life, and then allowing each child to utilize the full spectrum as they need it at any one particular point in time. And I think it's very important for me to mention as well that this is not a particular resource requirement. We're looking to provide, and we believe our partners work with us and do a fantastic job, uh, providing wonderful play experiences in the most desperate of refugee camps, And then right the way through to the most affluent of environments, it doesn't have a pre-prescription. What is essential is that the child has the opportunity to truly explore their areas of interest and their passions.
0: Tell us a little bit about where things stand today and, and having a bit of a look ahead moment, John, where, as you said, there was, of course, a shift in terms of the programs you're working on and really a full focus on the areas. That, of course, are confronting educators, uh, parents, and of course, children as well, with regard to schooling at the moment. Are you now moving to a period where you're starting to reopen some of the other programs if you sort of look across the next, yeah, the next quarter, the next six months? How much of a return to normalization is there in terms of what the foundation was doing nine months or a year ago?
1: I mean, it's a very timely question. We're right in the middle now of starting to think about the transition from crisis management and crisis interventions through to adaptations of the previous strategy in order to now embrace what's emerging as a consequence of the global pandemic. So how is it that we need to adapt what we were doing before in order to recognize the, in many instances, tremendous innovation that has occurred on the back of the global pandemic With regards to children's learning and children's engagement, how do we really utilise that innovation, sustain the momentum, whilst also ensuring that we adjust and put in place structures that can support those children that have really been perhaps left behind as a consequence of the pandemic? So that's what we're working through now is figuring out what should sustain from what was the strategic approach prior to the pandemic and what needs to be let go because there's a new reality that's emerging and we really should adapt and apply a different approach.
0: to John Goodwin for joining us for this week's episode of The Chiefs. And don't forget, our Chiefs conference is fast approaching. Join us on September 17th at Suverda House in St. Moritz. And I'm talking live and in person to hear from C-suite business leaders, innovative city mayors, tax-sharp ambassadors, and chief design officers to find out where we're going next. Head to monocle.com to find out more. The Chiefs was produced by Paige Reynolds and edited by Louis Allen. I'm Tyler Brulé in Zurich.